people want like a, the list of four things that you do to be like a, an attractive company, right? And, and to build a, like a place where people want to work, which is great, but that's like a first step, right? And, and you can't fake it because people see through that. Ever imagine you could be mentored and guided by some of the most influential leaders in business? That's where 40 Minute Mentor comes in. I'm passionate about making business mentorship accessible to everyone. So whether you're just beginning your career or you're looking for advice in taking the leap and starting a new venture, or perhaps you're scaling a rocket ship, this show is designed to cover everything from the ground up in the next 40 minutes. Your 40 Minute Mentor for today's episode is Ben Stevenson, founder and CEO of Travel Tech Scale-Up Impala. Like so many successful entrepreneurs, Ben is driven by solving problems and few areas have been more problematic over the years than the travel industry. Hamstrung by clunky infrastructure and in desperate need of updating. As a result, Ben launched Impala in 2016 and has since raised millions in funding from a host of world-class VCs, including Latitude, Stride VC and Lakestar, who between them have backed unicorns like Airbnb, Deliveroo, Spotify and Kazoo. Underpinning their great success is Impala's unique cultural DNA and the team's drive to build a future in which travel is seamless. I really enjoyed my conversation with Ben, who is refreshingly honest and engaging. So whether you're a founder of a scale-up, or someone who's looking to build a remote-first team, or you just love to travel, you'll learn so much from Ben's unique experience and insights in this episode. So with all that said, please sit back, relax, and enjoy the upcoming 40 minutes with the brilliant Ben Stevenson. Ben, welcome to the 40 Minute Mentor. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us. Hey, James. Great to be here. Awesome. Well, we are going to kick off, as we always do, with some quickfire questions to get to know you a bit. So if you don't mind finishing these sentences after me, that would be fab. Sure. Sounds good. Right. First up, when I was younger, I always wanted to be... Oh, an author or a politician. Oh, uh, why a politician? I'm intrigued. Uh, I, you know, that's a really good question. I was always really into history. And then sort of latterly, like the, the sort of, I guess, like more, you know, like politics and contemporary history, that sort of thing. So I don't know. I like uh, big dreams, like, you know, change the world, that sort of thing, maybe. Neither successful so far. I've, I've, I've yet <laughs> to write anything or win an election. So there we go. Well, there's still plenty of time. You're still young. And as a fellow historian, I relate. My first job was? I was a glass collector at a cocktail bar in Middlesbrough. And I then, a couple of years later, went on to manage that cocktail bar. And I, so I was a glass collector, a bartender, the head bartender, and then the manager over the course of about two years. And it was it was back in the days when you used to be able to smoke in, in bars and pubs. And so, I remember and so those job, days. <laughs> yeah, right? And so I'm actually reading a book at the moment and they keep mentioning smoking in pubs. And I'm like, that's so weird, that's so strange. But the job of a glass collector back then was that half glass collecting and half like sweeping up cigarette ends. And so you do like two rounds of you do two rounds of glass collecting and then you do a round of, of cigarette sweeping. Oh, wow. Yeah, I think it's a rite of passage that isn't it doing doing time in a bar or as a wait. We, we, a lot of a lot of uh, answers to this question have been waiting or bar bar work. I think it's a great it's a, it's, a, it's a really good thing to do early in your career. And you clearly were very good at it because you progressed quite quickly through the ranks, it seems. 
So I'm going to disagree, and I'm going to tell you it was a garbage, horrible thing to do at the beginning of like your career. But like, and I'm, I'm pretty sure I was crap at glass collecting. I was pretty lazy <laughs> with it, and I was always trying to find like, God, this is the this is the most like startup entrepreneur thing to say. I was always trying to find ways to make it quicker. I was trying to find like efficiencies. But no, yeah, like I, I guess I, I got kind of interested in in like how things are made and you know did some cocktail stuff and and then went on to manage the bar. So yeah, it was pretty fun, but it was horrible. Yeah, awful time. And when starting my career, I'd wish I'd known. So many things. I think now, if like sitting where I am today, I think I'd wish I'd known about the concept of leverage, right? Like I think actually I'm always like trying to do something myself. I'm always like, oh, I'll do that. Like I'll do that, you know, like I'll get involved in this. And sort of people would say, hey, you know, you don't have to do everything. And that's kind of, well, you know, that's fine. That's like helpful advice. But ultimately I'm like, well, I kind of like to do lots of different things. But then I sat down with Tom Valentine, who's the CEO of Marketplace at Secret Escapes. And he was talking about leverage and he was, yeah, when I like cracked the concept of leverage with certain actions, I could do a hundred times bigger things. I was like, that's like, absolutely. I won't swear because I don't know if we can, if I can swear, but like, I was like, go for it. (laughs) I was like, fucking hell. Once I got my mind over that, I was like, great. I wish I'd known that. Amazing. That's a that's a great one. And I'm most energized at work when I, when I see the competition doing well. Like I think, like if I see the thing that like spurs me into action more than anything else is like like a really big announcement by competition, and then I'm like, all right, like everyone, let's like you know we like the big guns. Everyone get in a room, like crack some heads, that kind of thing. Yeah, love it. Yeah, that and that's and that says a lot about your personality i think because you, you do get founders that yeah it's kind of panic stations if the competition does it makes a big move and then actually whereas it seems to bring the best out of you which is probably says quite a lot so uh, yeah thank you there's an interesting thing which is like marvel the comic company refers to dc internally as distinguished competition and i think that's like the best way to do well is to like hold your competition in high regard i think so there we go Great point. And finally, can you share something that we wouldn't learn from your CV? So that could be a perceived failure or some sort of setback in your career that you've learned a lot from. So I had to, I dropped out of university. So not really by choice. I had like two things happen to me in the space of about six months, which were pretty serious. I I destroyed my knee playing rugby and I had to have the entire thing rebuilt. And my mum got really, really, really sick. And so I, I dropped it. She's okay now. She's, she's very much out and about and enjoying the world. But like at the time, it was, it was a bit touch and go. And so, yeah, so like that was, you know, over the court, I had like a sort of a, a nice sort of like, you know, childhood, et cetera, and then went off to university. And then suddenly like the world changed. Um, my parents got divorced. I destroyed my knee. I had to move back home, um, look after my mom. Like I started a web design agency so that I could like make money because I didn't have a degree and it was, you know, post GFC. And I think like what I learned from that is that like life isn't always going to be the same right like that you know you can you can be very happy and in a great place at one minute and then like a series of things can happen that really flips it on on your head and you know i think everyone in the world has just seen that with like the the pandemic where so many people you know were counting the chips on like their successes and then the, the pandemic hit so yeah i think that's one thing that it taught me yeah, no, that's that's such a great answer and, and really interesting. And I guess it says a lot about resilience and ability to kind of pivot and and uh, you know, as we've seen from some amazing businesses in lockdown, that that you know, it's it's it can be fight or flight. And and there's definitely been a lot of ex- examples of people that have 
kind of once you've got over the initial shock of, of, of a global pandemic, they've actually used it to their advantage and, and really made the most of it. So that's, yeah, that's really interesting. Well, thank you, Ben. Lovely to already get a snapshot into you and your background. And before we dive into Impala's really quite amazing growth story, I'm always very fascinated by fellow founders in their early careers, because I know everyone's slightly different. So we'd love to dig into why you started your business. But before that, you went to uni to study languages, um, and then you pivoted into software engineering. So t- tell us a bit more about that shift, how that came about, and, and how you managed to gain the experience for, for the industry you're in now. Yeah, so I think actually the the probably the CV reads the other way to how it actually went. I sort of like taught myself to program from the age of about six or seven, and then pivoted, then pivoted into languages like actual like natural languages like later on. So when I was a kid, I used to play. I was an incredibly popular child, and so I spent most of my time in my room playing computer games, and but like not even exciting computer games, not even like you know I guess Doom and Quake and all these like games that like you know and like I Gran Turismo them well, yeah, you know like the Gran Turismo, <laughs> and FIFA, and, yeah, yeah, and, and all the games that like you know like cool kids would play. I didn't play any of them. I played like um, I played a lot of like online simulation games, right? So like these space like combat games, and I, I found them fascinating, right? Because I was like, this is this web browser. Here's this thing that like you can that seems super accessible and you can do so much with it, right? And so I was like, how are these made? How are these built? Right. And like so I went on this kind of like um tried to find out, you know, everything I could about like how websites are or, like not even I'm gonna say how websites are made, but like really how like online games are made. And I I, I bought, I got my mum to buy me a book, which was called Beginning PHP 4. And it's this giant sort of red book. And I sat on holiday in the south of France. And read like that, like we were in this like little villa, and I read that book. And we didn't have a laptop, like we couldn't afford a laptop or anything like that. I, I don't, we went hard up. We were in the South France, right? But like we didn't have a laptop, and so I just like wrote code out on like like lined paper that I found in this house. And then we went home, and none of it worked, of course. And then from there, like I I sort of like worked on a few like or just like helped out in a few like you know community projects, building on like games, and did some web developmenty stuff. But taught myself to so taught myself to program, and then and then. When it came to choose what to like do with my life, I, I couldn't really, I had no idea. And as I was pretty good at languages, and so I was like, ah, cool. And I had a really, I had incredible, an incredible French teacher who who got me through some some hard times with my mum's illness. And uh, so I was like, hey, that sounds like a cool thing to do. So I went off and, and did that. Fascinating. So that so you really did start early. That's 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 really interesting. And then and then tell us a bit about how things evolved from there because you clearly came back to that skill set to get into technology. But I think you mentioned when you were. When you pulled out of university, you started up a business. So was that heavily centered around technology? Well, so the thing was, right, is that like you, you when you like drop out of university in 2009, so just post GFC, and there are no jobs for anyone, let alone someone with no degree, like a half a French degree in like the northeast of England. In which case, at the time, I think like having half a French degree was worse than having no degree at all. Like you think that was like you know you're an outsider as well. And so, and I couldn't really walk very well because I had busted leg. And so I said, well, what can I like? What marketable skill do I have? Um, I'm kind. I guess I'm like a bit opinionated and annoying, and no one's going to pay me to do either of those things. But like ultimately, I can, which is different now because you're a founder, so people pay you to be opinionated and annoying, right? 
But like the only thing I could do is build websites. Um, and so I had a friend of mine, and I was crap at design, but I had a friend of mine who is like a, an industrial designer, or like he, he would refer to himself these days as an industrial designer, but he was like, he hadn't dropped out of university. He was like too lazy to go in, in, the, in the first place. And I don't say this in terms of people that don't go to a university are lazy, not at all. Like I just mean he in particular, his reason for not going was that he was too lazy. And so I was like, hey, do you want to come and like design some websites? Like, and I'll build them and we'll, we'll sell them. So we set up this, this little agency. And, and from there, I realized that like, I kind of fell back in love with it. And, and then I, I went and took a bunch of different contracts in different places and met some different people and then found myself down in London as a sort of software engineer, head of engineering. And that's the story of kind of, and then, you know, how we found in Parlor was, was sort of the discovery of, of like what I discovered on that, on that journey, really. Yeah, we're going to, we're going to come on to that. I guess you clearly have this entrepreneurialism within you. Where do you think that comes from? Was that, is that just a natural trait or did, did you pick that up over, over the course of your career? So I like, I, I wouldn't, until recently, I probably wouldn't have like thought of myself as like an entrepreneur, like in particular, because I think like entrepreneurs, in the classical sense, like are sort of people that like enjoy the process of starting a business and enjoy the process of like commerce, like and like enjoy commerce, right? And I think like for me, I like I never had that was like never why I was doing it. I was sort of doing it to problem solve, right? Like I, you know, in I, you know, we found it in parlor because I was like incredibly fucking irritated at like the problems I was facing in my, in my last job. And, you know, we, I built that web design agency, not because I was like, oh, you know, like I, I don't want a boss or I don't think I can learn or I love commerce. It was because like, well, that's the only thing I can do. No, no web design agency is going to hire me because there's no jobs going and, and all the rest of it. And so I can do. So I, I probably think of myself more of as a, as a, like, I guess now I probably think more of it because I'm like, okay, great. You know, if I wasn't doing a parlor, what would I do? I'd probably build another company because that's kind of interesting to me now. But my dad w- wouldn't have referred to himself as an entrepreneur. He would have referred to himself as self-employed. And so like he, he like owned a, like a, a, like a car garage. And then like after that, he, he like had a small, like a two person engineering firm. So, uh, which still runs to this day. But like, again, entrepreneur, it was, we never used the word entrepreneur in the house. It was just like, you just, it was just work, right? Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's really interesting. Well, we, we really want to come on and talk about Impala because it's gone from strength to strength. I know in the last five years, you built the team to over 100 people. You've raised millions in VC funding, including a 20 million raise in 2020. So firstly, massive congratulations on, on all your success. I know our listeners are going to be really interested to hear how this has all come about. So, so where did the initial idea for Impala come from? And how did you know back in 2016 it was the right time to, to, to make it happen? So I, I think, so, you know, I can't remember who it is, someone much smarter than me, but they, have, but the, but they, they say that you should only ever start a business if you're angry. And I think that's like, or like a software business, certainly. I think it's probably like fairly cliche, but like that's totally like how I, how I thought of it, which is how I think about it, which is that like, so I was, I was a, a sort of an interim head of engineering at, at what we call like a, an OTA, so like a luxury OTA in London. And, you know, like you can think of like booking.com, but for a, like subscription set of like high net worth individuals. And I'd sort of been invited to, or like I'd invited to this job. I'd been like recommended this job because, you know, I was really interested in travel. I was really interested in building new things. And they had this grand vision of, of all the different 
things that they would do for the world, like give travel. So, you know, you would be able to book specific rooms and hotels. You would be able to like have like walkthroughs of the room before you got there. You'd be able to choose the layout. You would be able to ensure that you had like the quietest room in the hotel. You know, you'd be able to subscribe and, and like pay for, you know, not have to pay for hotel rooms ad hoc. You'd have like a subscription business. And all of this I found like really, really fascinating, right? I was like, that's super cool. Like, you know, I haven't changed the way that, like the way that I've been booking hotels has been exactly the same for like, you know, my entire life. And, like, you know, it just happens to now be online rather than in a travel agent. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. And so I, I took this job and I spent the next 18 months of my life banging my head against a brick wall because it was genuinely like the most painful 18 months of my life because like the way that travel works is that it's it's been you know online for 35 years right you know in 1978 when you went into travel agent they had to know that there was a room available for you there was a flight available for you like they couldn't overbook really right and so it was digitized loosely you know, sorry, if anyone's listening to this audio, I'm doing air quotes. Um, this is like, it was like digitized like very early on. And because of that, the infrastructure is super old, right? And so all the rails that like travel bookings and availability and information about travel runs on, it's like, it, it's ancient, it's creaking, right? And so you can't do anything new on top of it, right? Like it's like, it's like trying to build a mansion on quicksand, right? Like it just, it just fails. And there are like thousands and thousands of people out there, like genuinely like, you know, people that are much more like entrepreneurial than me and like, you know, startup founders and people in big organizations that are trying to change things. And, and they're trying to build like a different travel experience. They're trying to do something new, but they can't. Like they're all like banging their heads against brick, wall, brick walls because these rails are just so fragile and broken. And so like from, the, you know, the two ways to think about this, number one, I was like, well, that's like a big opportunity travels a $1.6 trillion industry. Like if you were to redesign that infrastructure from scratch, if you were to build a new stack, then like it could be a, like a highly, a, a very strong commercial prospect. But more than anything else, I was like, I'm f- so fucking sick of doing this that like I'm going to build the thing so that like we don't have to do this anymore. And I tell you what, the moment that like the, the first booking was made on our infrastructure, I think was like one of the like happiest moments of my, my life because I was like that's it there we go we're off to the races now and so it was a long time of getting there but very happy yeah. amazing so so tell our listeners how is Impala shaking up the industry of travel and for those that might be skeptical why is travel a good one to go into yeah sure so absolutely so how do we shake up the world of travel so if you think about it in many ways like like Impala operating like say Stripe or Plaid or Twilio did in any other industry right or AWS or Google Cloud or, or something like that which means that we enable the tens of the next 10,000 businesses that are going to be created in this space. So what that means is that within the next six months, you'll start to see lots and lots of different ways to book hotel rooms and to book travel. And you'll start to see really interesting things happen at that point, right? So you'll no longer, you know, everyone sort of is, is very used to this like booking flow where they're like, okay, great, like, you know, place, number of nights, number of people, like 10,000 results, I'll click the top one, you know, okay, great. There's, so, you know, standard double view with river city view or whatever. And it's just kind of like fairly bland and dull. Over the course of the next six months to a year, you'll see incredible new booking flows appear and you'll be able to effectively step in, you know, the process of booking travel, which historically has been the, like, should be really fun, but it's like the biggest fucking pain in the ass, will become incredibly fluid and, and not necessarily, you know, because we're directly building that flow, but because the infrastructure that we've built is allowing thousands and thousands of people to do that and to do that differently. So it's very exciting. 
Yeah, music to all travellers' ears. I think there's going to be a lot of people listening to this desperate to get out and about after uh, uh, 18 months in lockdown. So that's that's very exciting. On that, the second part of your question, which is like the, you know, the, the why travel sort of aspect of it. Like, I think there is never, there's never been a better time to be involved in the travel industry. It's rebuilding from the ground up with massive demand, right? So all of the ancient dogma that you, in any industry, right? Like I'm sure in, in, in your industry, James, there's, you know, there's, there's a bunch of dogma like, oh, you can't do that. Like, you know, you can't do that. That'll never be accepted by blah. None of that exists in travel anymore. Everyone has new horizons. Everyone is open to change. And, you know, nine months ago, I just said the same thing, but there was no demand. Whereas, like, today, demand is off the charts. It looks different. The shape of it's very, like, very unusual. So a lot more domestic demand, a lot lower, like, long-haul international demand. But, like, this, you know, if you look at, say, China, the Chinese market, for instance, they are at or higher than 2019 volumes in every domestic market. If you look at, if you look at, you can't find a hotel room in New York. You can't find a hotel room in full of no money and you know results across the across the world. So, demand is is skyrocketing, and everyone's open to new possibilities, which is super exciting. Yeah, it's really exciting, and that does really resonate with me actually, because when I when I set up JBM almost nine years ago, the idea I said I'm going to grow this business completely through word of mouth completely through relationships and doing the role in the right way. And everyone was like, that's never going to happen. You're going to have to cold call. You're going to have to smash down doors. You're going to have to be that typical transactional recruiter to kind of get the volume through the door. And it's just not the case. And it's it's just great when you, you know, when you see that you've got this idea for something and it comes off. And I think something's just about, it's about challenging convention, isn't it? And really going for it. And clearly you've done that to great effect. And it, it certainly sounds like a very exciting time to be in the industry. You've also received huge validation from some world-class VCs. What are you most proud of uh, over the last five years? And I guess on the flip side to that, what, what have been the, the biggest challenges you've had to overcome? Yeah, so I think I think like in terms of proud moments, like that, as I mentioned, that first booking coming through, I was like, holy, like it works. Because in terms of confronting dogma, actually the way our approach to building the technology is very... Um, idiosyncratic right like you know if you asked me in 2016 how we were going to do it the way that we've got to that now is like very different and sort of necessarily so you can't solve some of the problems that we have that the industry has by just doing it the way that you would expect to do it and so there's you know in terms of like when you say validation i think that like the biggest validation of like the the approach has been you know seeing it being used and working and i think when you have this you know when you have this problem and then you you know when you have a problem and you're like ah this industry you know and often the often the articulation is like ah this industry works in a stupid way right and the reason it does is because of like a bunch of layers of crap and once you set out to remove like those layers of crap and it takes time right like in, in recruiting right i'm sure there's like layers of crap right and, and if you're like i'm going to remove all that and everyone's like no you can't remove all that that's dumb you need to be you know and once you see it working that's like the greatest validation i think for me in terms of like low points well like any any startup founder will tell you that there are like i'm sure you you, you know you, you you'll have it yourself which is that like you, you go from the highest high to like something unexpected happening maybe it's like a candidate that that like had verbally agreed to join and you'd like announce internally and then they'd send you an email saying they're not going to do it anymore or maybe it's like that customer that you were like dead on is turning in a come then that would be a low I, I think for me there are two things that stand out the first being being more practical <laughs> be more like actual like this is what happened. we had we were seven people 
and I had hired a really senior engineer and he was a week away from starting and everyone was super excited and he sent me and but then he went silent like he signed the contract went silent and then I got an email like two days later from him saying oh you know I've had like a death in the family so so sorry we were like oh my god that's not a problem you know take as much time as you need all the rest of it and then the next day I had like an email from him. He changed his like LinkedIn, like he'd like been employed somewhere else. And he sent me an email saying, oh no, sorry, I was just buying time because I wanted to sign a contract for this other company. No, oh, you can't, you can't pull the family death card. That's awful. That is, it, it does terrible, happen though, right? doesn't it? Yeah. Shocking. So, so that was it. But that's like, why is that? A, I mean, like, you know, commercially, there's clearly like much larger events that have happened, have gone against us over the course of, the past few years but like why do i pinpoint that as a low i think it's because it's it's like the the, the purest form of rejection right which is like someone that knows or it's two things it's the purest form of rejection and the purest form of failure to sell because you're like you as the founder are like i'm trying to get someone bought into what we're doing and you tell them everything you get them involved you go, go through the entire thing you become like you're close to them at seven people and then all of a sudden they're like you know no i'm gonna go and go somewhere else and and you're like Phew. I just wanted to give a special shout out and thanks to our sponsors for this series, Chipper Cash. The team have been on an incredible journey, having launched their borderless way to send money across Africa and beyond in eight countries so far, and are widely considered to be Africa's most valuable startup. So go check them out at chippercash.com or tune in to our 40 Minute Mental episode with their co-founder and CEO, Ham Serenjoji. It's hard to face your team as well. I mean, you've you've all invested so much emotional energy in it, and and you've planned accordingly, and you probably spent a lot of time and probably money on it, and it is just a very hard pill to swallow, isn't it? I mean, we've we've had that for ourselves, and we've also seen it happen to our clients. It's the it's the best and worst part of the job, isn't it? The the people side, you know, bringing in amazing talent, but people also change their minds, so it's 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 often the hardest part. That's really interesting. So so we, so we had that, and then the second one that I, I'd point to is we had a customer very early on, like a beta customer, in fact, not even that, an alpha customer for one of our products. And there'd been some miscommunication in the early like sell-in where they thought we were building something that we weren't. And it sort of didn't come out until they'd put a little bit of effort in to like, they'd hide in an outsource agency to adapt their product in a way that would like allow them to use the thing that we're building. And then like, you know, and then this problem came up with it because, you know, there was like some issue and then it got escalated to me and I was like, you know, like they think we're we're doing this thing and we're not, we're doing something slightly different. So, you know, they they thought we were slightly higher up the stack than we were. And that's like, and that's a nightmare because they were a small company. Like there was a meaningful amount of money for them to have invested. Like we'd done like a bad job of communicating to them, like what we were trying to do. And we probably had like too eager a sales process. And we, we sorted out in the end and we figured out how to like make it work. But like that was a really shitty moment. You know, when you, because you, the guy across the other, the, the, the girl across the other side, the, the person across the other side of the table from you is like you. They're just trying to build a business and like they've got to watch their, 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 their cash flows, et cetera. How did, how did you deal with that? Because I think, I guess for our listeners, for any founders listening that might be in that situation right now, what, what was the solution to that? So in the end... What we did is we, we slightly adapted the product so that they could use it in the short term. It, we, it was not so much the product, in term, but rather the kinds of hotels that we were working with so that they could use it in the short term 
whilst they looked for another um, solution. And and we like we offered to pay like a, an amount of their like the the cost that that they'd incurred through outsource development, which was which was like to us after a few fundraisers pretty like pretty low level, but for them was like a meaningful amount, right? And yeah, so I, I think that's probably quite a unique situation. But if you're like I think as a founder, yeah, it's it's tough. Like you can't really avoid those sorts of situations. You've got to you've got to make bets on relationships, and sometimes they yeah, don't totally, totally. You you went remote first with your team in in 2017, which was a very progressive step. Then it seems normal now, but uh, I guess back then it it wasn't the, the the done thing necessarily. So why why did you decide to do that, and how did you overcome some of those initial challenges that came with that decision? So yeah, definitely definitely wasn't the we didn't tell anyone. Do you know what we like? We actually were like we would go out and raise an investment round. Like we raised our like seed round. I can't remember. We raised some round, and I, we just didn't tell anyone that we were like a remote company because it was like antithetical. Not that we, if they'd have asked, we wouldn't have been like, hey, here's our fictional London office. But we just we weren't, weren't like you know super forward with that that information because because like at the time in 2017. People were like, oh, you, you can never be acquired. You can, you know, you can't like, you, you won't be able to hire commercial talent. Like, you, you know, you won't be able to raise money, like further funds. And so, so yeah, so it was, it was tough. Why did we do it? We did it because like we had this office in central London that no one was ever in. We were like, because we were a travel company, right? So we, and we were also like very, Charlie, my co-founder and I, are like very relationship driven people, right? So we like to go to, we also love travel, right? So if you're like, hey, there's this customer in Berlin, you know, are you going to jump on a call with them? You're like, no, we'll go to Berlin and we'll like win the deal because we'll be there in person. We'll shake hands and we'll go for a drink. And we love doing that, right? And so, so we had this office that cost us WeWork. It cost us like, you know, two and a half grand a month or whatever. And like no one was ever in it. And so we were like, well, you know, is there much point? And at the same point in time, my partner at the time had a job offer. So she, she, she was a teacher and she says to me, she says, oh, I've got three jobs that I've applied for. One's in Berlin, one's in Barcelona, and one's in Birmingham. And I was like, great, 66% chance we're going to go somewhere wonderful. Uh, not that Birmingham, it doesn't have its own own particular you know, charm. Edge Baston, for instance, wonderful. I yes, watch cricket. big fan. And I'm an Aston Villa fan, so. <laughs> there you go, there you go. So anyway, so, so I was like, oh, cool, fine, great. Anyway, she got the job in Birmingham. And so I was like, oh. Well, so it, it was all, all kind of came at the same point in time where we were like, well, let's just, like, we'll just be remote. And how we dealt with that, how we dealt with those problems being a remote company, you, you still have all the problems of a large company. They just come slightly earlier. So, like when you, you know, every founder out there will, when you speak to investors or advisors, they'll talk about breakpoints, right? So they'll say a company always breaks at fifty, one hundred and fifty, five hundred, and two thousand, right? And you have to sort of regenerate the company every time. And for a start, for a remote company, that kind of happens a bit earlier in each of those. So we've we've noticed the breakpoints being like you know ten and like forty and probably around one hundred and ten. And so how we dealt with that is we just had a big strong people team. That's the that's the secret sauce. Going higher ahead of people really early. Yeah, and I think that's we've seen some of the 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 startups that have built the best cultures, have hired some of the best people, and retained them have have invested in people early. So that's that 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 really resonates. Obviously, the pandemic's happened. Lots of businesses are now having to work remotely and have then adopted that as kind of either a hybrid model or fully remote. What advice do you have for anyone that's listening to this that is still kind of navigating this and, and unsure of what way to go between remote first and hybrid? What, what advice would you have? So I think there is no blanket solution. 
Like, I, I think like the two worlds of like, I can't remember what, what investment bank it is, the Goldman Sachs, like it has to be in person. And then like the, the sort of militant remoters that are like, oh my God, you're so stupid for going into an office. Like, think about all the commute that you could save, you know, like both of those ways of thinking, I think are pretty reductive and, and largely garbage. Because I think for every different company, there is a different style of work. So for us, largely technology driven, largely product driven, like actually being a remote first company like works quite well because we have lots of engineers, we have lots of product managers. And for other companies, like if I was a heavily sales driven business, so you know, if I was like, for instance, a flash deal site, if I was like Groupon or someone like that, like that had lots of junior salespeople, I probably wouldn't adopt a remote first one, no matter how much I like traveling, right? Because I, I think that that would be quite problematic. So I, my two pieces of advice, and I, I'll give an actual piece of advice for remote companies in a second, are like, you know, first of all, make sure that you have the model that works for you rather than a model that sort of just been sold to you via like some strong media. And actually a good way to think about that is like what percentage of my company is going to be commerce versus R&D, like I think that's a reasonable way to think about it. Very sort of finger in the air, but reasonable. And then I think for if you are going to be a remote first company, make sure that you hire a what is effectively a head of people. Lots of people call it a head of operations. Lots of people, you know, it's an operations manager. But make sure you hire someone that's not a salesperson, that's not a developer, that's not a product person in those first 10 hires, whose job is to make sure the team is communicating, to make sure the team is happy, to organize like the, the, the various different things that you'll have to do. And like, and all the, you know, and that grows into a, a really strong head of people that, that deals with like LED and DEI and, and all these other things that are super vital. And my second piece of advice is that like, if you're going to be remote, you're going to meet in person a lot and prepare for like large travel budgets because that's like the, the, the secret sauce really. Okay, that's and not that's just because I'm in the travel industry. <laughs> no, that's that's really helpful, and and uh, we will come back to talk about culture because I think it's something you've built a very good one. I'd love to pick your brains on it, but just to quickly touch back on the pandemic because it would be silly not to talk to you about it because it's played such havoc with the travel industry. How did you manage to protect your your business during that very difficult time, and and also your team, and and how did you manage to attract more investment in such a difficult period? Well, so we, we closed our investment round about two weeks before the pandemic hit. So it okay. wasn't, good timing. wasn't over. It was, yeah, very good timing. So we're in a slightly different position from that. But, but I think how do we you know, retain talent? How do we continue to grow as a business? Well, you, you, you look at the opportunity, right? So you're like, okay, well, like thinking about the market, what's different now? And how can we position ourselves to best make use of that? So for us, what that meant was, we sort of had this you know, five-year plan, right? If you go back and look at like our pitch decks from earlier on, which you can't because they're not public, but like if they were public, what they'd see would be like a, you know, hey, you know we're going to do the first phase for us is going to be working with hardware and software manufacturers and giving them infrastructure. And then the second phase, which is going to take three or four years to get to, is going to be about bookings and distribution. And that second market is much larger, much more exciting, but we have to do this first thing to get a name for ourselves, build a brand and get people, you know, understanding what we're doing. And so the pandemic hit and all of those things that we thought we needed to do before we could access that second market 
went out the window because like everyone's dogma went out the window. And so for us, it was like, hey, actually, can we move this a lot earlier? And can we like start doing this today? Whereas normally we wouldn't be able to do it till 2022, 2023. And so we did. And, and that, by the way, is like, I, I think you've got to like make bold moves in like the face of lots of opposition. Like lots of people were like, hey, you know, this thing, you know, this pandemic might only last a month or two. Like, why don't we, you know, maybe two, you know, two or three months, you know, let's just like focus on what we're doing. Like, let's just make sure that like the ship is stable. You know, do we really want to reallocate resources to do something which is like a, a bit of a moonshot, right? And now fast forward, you know, however many months, 16 months, like absolutely, you know, great decision. But like, you know, very smart people were like, hey, you know, maybe don't do that. And here's a piece of advice to, a fan, to founders. Very rarely are you going to get someone, when you have an idea that you think is controversial, like that you, but you think is excellent, you're never going to get someone going, great, go and do that, right? You might, if you've got great board members, what they might say is, I trust you. I think you know what you're doing. Off you go. And that's the best you'll get. So if you've got some controversial move to make, you know, and this might be even before founding your business, right? This might be like, hey, I want to found a business, right? It's kind of like a controversial thing to do. You're probably in a stable job. Like you have, a, maybe you have a family. Maybe, you know, your parents want you to continue being a doctor or a, a lawyer or a mechanic or whatever it might be. And so it's controversial to go. And no one, the, even the best people, the best friends, they're not going to say, that's a great idea. I've thought it through as well as you have. And I, I've come to the same conclusion. They might say, hey, I trust you. And I think that's what, and that's the best you're going to get. So yeah. Yeah. Awesome. No, that's, that's super helpful. I wanted to come back to culture and talent because you clearly built a company that where people love, love working for you. You've managed to attract some really high caliber people. Tell us a bit about what steps you've taken to attract great talent and also make Impala an organization that can retain the best of the best. I think you can't fake it. I think a lot of people sort of are like, okay, great. Like we want, so I, I, you know, I often get asked to speak to like other companies by investors where they're like, Hey, this company has like a problem with culture or it's probably has a company with employee engagement or, you know, that sort of thing. Can you, can you have a quick chat with the founders? See what you think. And a lot of the time people are like, okay, people want like a, the list of four things that you do to be like a, an attractive company. Right. And, and to build a, like a place where people want to work, which is great, but that's like a first step. Right. And, and you can't fake it because people see through that. People like immediately, you know, maybe not in the first interview, maybe not in the second, maybe actually not till they start working there, but like people ultimately will see through that. Controversial, right? It's also fine not to build a people first company, right? So long as you're upfront and honest about it, right? Like if you want to build like a hyper aggressive, like, you know, sharp sales driven business with lots of edges, there will be people that want to work there and that can be attractive to some people. So, you know, I think don't fake the DNA of your business in your outward brand to candidates because they'll, they'll see through it pretty quickly. But like ultimately, yeah, like caring about people is like a thing that we do. Like we, you know, internally, I think we probably go further and do more for our employees than like most of the businesses. And if you want to compete with us on that front, then you have to be pretty genuine about doing it because there's some like painful budget consider. It's like painful, right? To go to sit down in a conversation and like sign off on like X thousands of pounds for something that is not going to generate direct revenue. Like it's going to make people happier, increase employee engagement and all the rest of it. And it's a long-term thing. That's painful as a startup founder, but you have to want to do it, right? I think. Yeah, no, well, that, I think it's that authentic leadership. And, and yeah, as you said, the DNA of your company clearly 
is people first can you just give some examples like what what can founders listening to this or 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 any people leaders listening to this what are some of the things that have landed really well with your team yeah so i i think you know there's two sides to this right there's like the bread and butter stuff right so there's the like the everyday core like ways that people interact and the core things that, that you have so that can be something like you know holiday time that can be something like you know like the time that people start that can be like the approach that you take to that discussion about whether or not it's okay to move a weekly standing meeting from 8 a.m to 10 a.m because people have the school run so there's that that's like that cultural thing and so for that, that's the sort of like non-flash like you've got a great people team, they'll think about these sorts of things. You as the founder have to build a culture where like you're appreciative and understanding of people. And then there's the sort of other end, the sort of exciting, cool stuff that like you can, can brand. So one of the things that we do, for instance, is you know, we have this uh, what we call a loved ones budget, right? So we're a remote company. And what that means is we get lots of people that have just moved to a new city. So, you know, some of our engineers, for instance, will have just moved to somewhere interesting but out of the way. So maybe we got an engine. This isn't, it's not out of the way. So sorry to, to all, all Irish people, but we, we have, you know, a couple of people that have moved to Ireland, so Cork and, and Dublin, because their partners have taken jobs there. And so they had a look at the local scene and were like, well, there's no companies here that immediately jump, you know, jump to mind. So I'll, I'll take a look online and look at remote jobs. And so for them, it was their first remote job and they were in a new city, right? Which means they're probably, you know, they, they're probably quite lonely, right? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like any person, no matter how introverted, wants to see friends and, and, and meet family. So we decided to put together a budget which just allows people to fly in friends and family, right? So, you know, like if you're that engineer that sits in, in Dublin or the, the salesperson in Cork, then you can fly in you know, your family for, you know, for a weekend, right? And, and we'll pay for them to fly and, and put them up for the weekend. And, and it's stuff like that where it's like, it's seeing an actual practical thing that's problematic, right? And trying to create something that solves that for your team is, is like pretty useful, right? So, you know, because we can, we can all spend a shitload on like cycle schemes, cycle to work schemes or, or whatever it might be. But like, you know, unless your employees are like, oh, you know what? Like I'm, I'm, I'm I really like, this is a big problem for me. Then you're not solving anything. You're just, you're just putting like lines on the job description and, and that's kind totally, of shitty, right? Totally. No, that's, uh, that's really thoughtful. And I think I can see why that lands so well. Then we're getting towards the end here. So I, 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 we're going to get to our wrap up questions, but my, my final question, I just, I wanted to congratulate you because I know you've recently become a father. So as a, a very proud dad myself, uh, congrats. I hope you're uh, managing to get a little bit of sleep. How have you been juggling parenthood and running a successful startup? Because that's something that probably a lot of people listening uh, to either if they're about to go off on that journey or they're already uh, doing it it's it's something that you can't really plan for so how are you uh, how are you coping so th- well thank you first of all thank you very much and I, I guess like i'm only now two weeks into fatherhood so or like you know i, I guess slightly over two weeks into into fatherhood so i don't presuppose that i have all, i don't suppose that i have all the answers I think you have to have a really strong support network around you. So like we're very lucky in that my mother-in-law has flown in from to help us look after look after Isabel, our daughter. And you know, we can make because the the sort of financial position that we're in, we can make some positive decisions to to help that. So I, I think, you know, making sure that you have a really strong support network around you is great is important. I would say if you're a founder and you're going to, to raise investment, then make sure that you have investors that you know will be supportive of the extra needs that you have going into you know you know parenthood 
or like, oh, you know, during the, the or, or during birth, like during that period. Because what you don't want, like what you absolutely don't want is to say, is to sit there thinking, fuck, you know, like I'm going to go broke because I'm paying myself a low salary and I'm about to have a kid and I can't go and ask our investors to like increase my, my salary because like, you know, because we're pre-revenue or because we're like not hitting targets or whatever. And at the same point in time, you don't want to sit down and worry about sending an email that says I'm going on you know, maternity leave or paternity leave. So building a great support network, but also making sure that the people you're involving, you know, like when I was before fundraising and people were like, oh, you've got to make sure you choose your investors wisely. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's just something that people that are in a great position of having lots of investors say, right? Like, great, right? Let me tell you, like, fuck that, like, do that, right? Go and make sure that you, like, you know, go and speak to the best, you know, local globe and stride and these great funds that, and there are others available, right? But like these, these great funds that like are founder friendly, because there will be times, I promise you, there are times, there have been times where I have been so, so thankful that, that sort of Fred Destan is on my board, you know, and, and I would, would recommend doing that. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ben. We're, look, we're at our wrap up questions. We're, we'll do these uh, quick, fast style. Ben, do you have a mentor? And if there was one person in the world that you'd like to be your mentor, who would it be? So I do have a mentor. His name is Jens Lipinski. So Jens is an investor out of Berlin. Um, he was the managing director of the accelerator that we went through. He now runs a very successful early stage venture fund. You should get in touch if you're raising funds and your B2B company, Angel Invest Ventures. And Jens has just been, you know, fantastic for me over, over the years. He's been, I speak to him slightly less these days. You know, he's, he's busy and we're a little bit further on, but like I, I look to him as like a, as a person that, that like if I'm like, I really don't know what to do here. I'll give him a call. And if there's one person in the world that I could have as a mentor, oh, I don't know. There's, there's, some, there's some good answers to that question. You know, I, if, I, if I'm like, I don't necessarily know that there's anyone that I would be like that person. If I could sit down for an hour and say like, who would I want to... No, I tell you what, I would love Tony Blair as a mentor. There you go. I think, I think as a communicator, as a person that, like, that had his finger on the pulse of sentiment and as a communicator, I think there are probably fewer people in the world i may have just turned off half the audience though so sorry <laughs> i was that. gonna say controversial no no thank you for sharing and how do you want to be remembered at the end of your career as a wildly successful island owner no i think you know at the end of, at the end of our career i'd like to i'd like to be remembered as someone that built an exceptionally important company in the space that transformed and changed the thing and i'd also like to be remembered as someone that ran a, a great place to, to 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 spend five years of your life um, I think those would be the two things. Great answer. And finally, Ben, for any aspiring entrepreneurs listening to this, what final piece of advice would you leave them with? Final piece of advice that I would leave you with is, and this is so cliche, but it's so true, the stuff that seems like the end of the world two days later will seem far less important. And the stuff that seems like the best thing that's ever happened like two weeks later will also seem far less important. So when those oh shit moments happen, and that customer cancels or that employee turns out and says no, like you walk into the kitchen, take a drink, sit down, think, does it really matter? And there you go. Awesome. Ben, thank you so much. It's been a real, real pleasure meeting you and uh, hearing your story. Thanks for being a great 40-minute mentor and we wish you all the very best on the fatherhood front and with Impala over the years ahead. Thank you very much, James. Great to, great to chat. Cheers. I really hope that you enjoyed that episode of the 40 Minute Mentor. And if you did, please leave us a review and tell your friends so we can continue to bring you awesome interviews from inspiring entrepreneurs and business leaders. Please also feel free to reach out at info at jbmc.co.uk. 
Thanks again for all your support.